Hello, my name's Luke, and welcome to Scapegoat, the podcast where we see who gets the blame and who gets away with murder. When I was a really young child, I remember telling a friend called Kieran that I loved the TV show called Wizardora. My friend Kieran responded to me that he had actually met Wizardora on several occasions, had even been over to Wizardora's house, and she had given him a special magical wand. Now, I loved Wizardora. And I really, really wanted to see this wand and some cool magic. But, surprise, surprise, I never got to see the wand or meet Wizardora. This is the kind of lie children will often tell, but grow out of later in their childhoods. But some people don't grow out of them. I remember talking to a girl called Kathy, and she was the ultimate one-up artist. If you had done something, she had done it better. You liked a band? She claimed to have seen them live. You bought a cheap electric guitar? She had bought a Gibson. But this also worked for bad things. If you complained about a bruised arm, she would tell you that she had broken her hand about a hundred times. I'm pretty sure if I had been in a car crash, she would have claimed to have been on the Titanic. Now, this is really harmless, because Kathy wasn't a bad person. She was just trying to look cool, or possibly get some attention. But sometimes this leads to people making claims which are downright offensive to other people, and that's what we'll be looking at today. Remembrance Day is a big holiday in the UK, where people honour fallen soldiers and veterans. It's customary for former servicemen to get in uniform, and march is a sign of respect. However, at Remembrance Day 2009, at a march in Warwickshire, people began to notice something slightly off, about one of the attendees. Lieutenant Roger Day was wearing a total of 21 medals and badges, as well as an SAS beret. Examining some of the medals he had won in campaigns in World War I, World War II, Korea, the Falklands, with both medals at an officer and a private class. This war record was even more impressive for someone born in 1948. If you look at Roger Day in comparison with the other men in the parade, there is a stark difference. Most of the rest of the men have between 1 and 5 medals, while Day has 17. When approached by journalists, Day claimed that he had earned all the medals, but he couldn't explain why, as he was still tied under a lot of the Official Secrets Act. However, after some research, the Telegraph discovered Day had only been in the army 14 months with service record that was extremely thin, and no record of any medals. Indeed, he wasn't even a lieutenant. His last known rank was that of private. When he was taken to court for the impersonation, Day revealed he had made up stories to impress his wife, who was 24 years younger than him, and he was living out of fantasy. However, this isn't a lone case, with others who have no military service buying uniforms and medals online. In the UK, a person who impersonates a former member of the armed services is called a Walter Mitty, named after a meek and mild character with a vivid fantasy life. Many veterans and veteran families find it deeply offensive that people who have genuinely served their country and risked their lives are being compared to others who are just playing dress-up. After a rash of these Walter Mitty cases, many veterans felt undermined and their medals delegitimized. Because of this, many veterans have started going online 
to try and spot Walter Mitty's and expose them to the UK tabloids. The reasoning behind the decision to pretend to be a military member is not widely reported, but according to a BBC article, many start off with a small boast to a friend or a family saying they were once in the army. Then slowly they begin to embellish the lie, adding more and more details. Before they know it, they're doing things like researching the army to cover up their lies, or even buying medals to prove something. You can quickly go from Alan McElrafe, a call centre worker, to Captain Sir Alan McElrafe, CBE, DSO, MC, MID. Alan started claiming that he was an army officer to stop people bullying him in the street and to get some respect. He began to spread this into his real life with him telling people at work all about his military heroics and even getting his friends to make him a fake Wikipedia page praising his war acts. He also managed to impress a girl with his military act and married her, claiming that he had recently been knighted and this made her Lady Shona. Eventually, after being spotted in the society magazine by someone who actually knew him, he was outed, lost his wife as well as his job. Across the Atlantic, there are similar problems with people pretending to be part of the military. However, this problem seems more pervasive than in the UK due to cultural differences. In America, it's far more common for people to wear military uniforms in civilian spaces. And since 9-11, many people have wished to be openly supportive of the troops, with veterans getting special discounts in stores, getting free stuff like starters in restaurants or even coffee. And while this is nice for the troops, it gives an incentive to people to claim to be a member of the armed services when they haven't been. And like in the UK example, many of these people are also just trying to impress others or maybe just get a date. And, you know, if you're pretending to get a date, it's sometimes used for a nefarious purpose, like to trick someone or steal their money. There have been many instances of people pretending to be veterans to trick money out of women on dating sites. We've actually covered this on our previous scams episode, so if you're interested in that, go back and listen to it. So many veterans or service people have began to notice people in public wearing military uniforms that don't quite seem right. Sometimes it might be something as simple as a patch not being as high up on the shoulder as it needs to be, or someone not wearing a regulation belt. But other times it can be completely crazy with imposters having a completely mismatching uniform. When people spotted an imposter military member in public, many record them, asking them basic questions, and if they can't answer, they label them as stealing valour. These videos are put online to shame the imposter. Here's an example of one. So the cover says U.S. Army. Stay put. The uniform says U.S. Air Force. And you said you were in what branch? Army. Army. And your name is Ronnie? Yeah. What rank were you in the Army? What rank? Yeah, what rank were you? Sniper? You got a Marine Corps emblem on your wallet. You got an Air Force uniform on with no name tape, no rank, and you're wearing a freaking U.S. Army cover, go faster, and you got freaking headphones in? People are going to think I made this shit up, Ronnie. However, with the rise of awareness of stolen valor, 
Many have tried to act against it by confronting people. This is something many officials have tried to dissuade people against, and they ask people to report stolen valour through the correct channels, as in the past, some former veterans have been accosted, insulted, and sometimes attacked by people thinking they're stealing valour. For instance, a 75-year-old veteran called Robert Ford was at a Memorial Day event in his military uniform. Someone suspected him of stealing valour, so they asked a policeman to question him. Mr. Ford answered his questions and walked away. But 10 minutes later, the police officer again approached Mr. Ford with more questions. Mr. Ford, being elderly, couldn't immediately remember the answer. As a response to this, the police officer yelled to a nearby crowd, He is not a real Marine. Stolen valour. Humiliating Mr. Ford. Another example is Michael Delphine, who did 12 years in the Marine Corps and was at home in Sacramento drinking in a bar. At the bar, a man noticed his military haircut and questioned his service. After Michael showed his military ID card, the other man refused to believe him, giving him abuse yelling stolen valour. Trying to leave, he was jumped by the other man and his friend and ended up with a broken jaw and leg. This shows how some people who lie about being in the military to show off can end up having negative effects on the lives of people they wish they could be. In the United States, a law was passed against stolen valour. However, the Supreme Court amended it to only be illegal if a person is using the uniform for profit. Sometimes, non-military people can get in trouble for saying that they had been involved in combat situations. American reporter Brian Williams was stationed with US troops during the Iraq War. He told war stories from the front line trying to personalise the story of American forces in Iraq. During one report, Williams said the helicopter he was travelling in had been forced to land for its own protection and the Chinook ahead of us was almost blown out of the sky by an RPG. He began to later repeat the story, so two years after the incident, he claimed he had actually seen someone pull back a black tarp off a pickup truck, reach for an RPG, and open fire. Two years after that, he began to add that he had noticed people with small arms opening fire at the helicopter in front and the pilot ended up getting hit in the ear by a bullet. Five years after the original incident, he claimed that all four helicopters in the area had been under fire. This had changed again on the 10-year anniversary in 2013, when he said two helicopters, including the one he was travelling in, had come under fire by RPGs and AK-47s. The same year, at Alec Baldwin's podcast, asked if he thought he was going to die, Williams replied, briefly, sure. However, things came to a head on January 30th, 2015, when Williams paid tribute to a retired soldier at a New York Rangers hockey game. He announced to the crowd that the soldier had saved his life when he was in the helicopter. This was used as a news piece and was widely shared. But this ended up being the final straw for other soldiers who had been there at the time, who actually now revealed that Williams had been a fraud. They said, There had been a group of three Chinook helicopters flying in formation about an hour ahead of Williams' helicopter. One of these was hit by an RPG, 
and all the helicopters were forced to make an emergency landing. When William's helicopter reached the others, it landed close by in formation. However, it had never been under threat, as this had all happened an hour before. Many soldiers who were there that day and were part of the first three helicopters came forwards to express their hurt that Williams had inserted himself into this event. Williams, delegitimized, ended up disappearing from the airways from February to September that year. But now, after this, his reputation seems to have recovered and he is now the main news person for his station. In 1996, at the height of the Balkan War, Hillary Clinton was sent to Bosnia as a morale booster and as a PR move. Thinking back to the time when she was on the campaign trail in 2008, she said, I remember landing under sniper fire. There was supposed to be some kind of greeting ceremony at the airport, but instead we just ran with our heads down to get to the vehicles, to get to the base. She also claimed that she was sent in place of her husband, President Bill Clinton, as he could not go, as it was far too dangerous. However, this statement was challenged in the press by Sinbad, a comedian who'd been travelling with them at the time. Sinbad, in case you can't remember, was in the movie Houseguest, and he was also Mandela-affected out of being in the movie Kazam. Sinbad pointed to the fact there was no sniper fire, and if it was so dangerous, why did Hillary bring her own daughter, Chelsea? Sinbad was quoted as saying his number one worry for the trip was, do we eat here or at the next place? Hillary refuted Sinbad's remarks, but footage from the Associated Press was found showing Hillary calmly getting off the helicopter with her daughter, speaking to citizens and soldiers on the ground with no sniper fire and appearing to be under very little pressure. The Washington Post reported her visit had actually happened four months after the Dayton peace agreement and there were very few physical risks on the ground, especially at Tulsa Air Force Base, which was very heavily fortified. In fact, President Bill Clinton had visited it two months earlier, proving it wasn't enough of a risk to stop him. Hillary later said she misremembered the incident. In 2015, Stephen Ranazizi was on top of the world. The Long Island native had moved to Los Angeles in the wake of 9-11 to make his fame and fortune. He had started off working on the TV show Punked as an actor to fool celebrities as part of a prank. As his career grew, he started saying his motivation for leaving New York was 9-11. Steve claimed that he was working at Merrill Lynch as an account manager on the 54th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. He had actually been in the tower when the first plane hit during 9-11 and he had managed to escape before the South Tower got hit by the second plane. Stephen began telling the story to people around him in comedy circles and in 2009 he told the story on Polly Shore's podcast, later repeating this story to Mark Marin with more detail saying he had vivid dreams about it all the time. It became something many people felt a great deal of sympathy for Stephen with, and it kept being brought up in interviews. However, by 2011, he said, I've spoken about it before. I just don't want people to ever feel like anyone I'm cashing in or anything like that. But it continued being brought up in interviews, much to Steve's discomfort.
Things continued for an upwards trajectory for Stephen's career with his breakout role in fantasy football sitcom The League. By 2015, Stephen had been offered a Comedy Central special and when he was going around advertising it, he got contacted by the New York Times who wanted to run a story on him. They specifically wanted to question parts of Steve's 9-11 story. After a day of deliberation, Stephen came clean on Twitter, admitting the entire account was fictional. He had not been working at the World Trade Center. Indeed, he was working in Midtown Manhattan on 9-11. He did not work for Merrill Lynch either, who had no record that he had ever been employed there. Indeed, one of the factors that gave him away was Merrill Lynch didn't even have offices at the World Trade Center Plaza, never mind high up on the 54th floor. Stephen said he didn't know why he'd come up with the story, inserting himself into other people's tragedies. And he'd been trying to roll back the story for years, playing it down, but it didn't work. As his TV show was in its final season with only two more episodes to film, he was allowed to return. But since the incident, the amount of work Stephen has been offered has been notably less than before. However, Stephen wasn't the only person who inserted himself into the tragedy of 9-11. After 9-11, people were left scrambling with so many people killed, wounded or psychologically scarred. Many people who were in the tower that day were left with a terrible survivor's guilt. Why did they live when so many others had died? Was there anything they could have done to save someone else? People felt the need to reach out and talk to others who had similar experiences to them. Jerry Bogatz had been on the 83rd floor of the North Tower when the first plane hit. By what he called blind luck, all the exits were open to him, and by 10am he was outside the building but he had lost three of his colleagues and was in open shock. In response, he formed the World Trade Center Survivors Network to help people affected. He began to meet a load of people who had equally been there that day. In 2003, he heard about a woman called Tanya Head. Tanya had set up an online community for survivors, and after emailing between her and Jerry, the two decided to merge their groups. Jerry didn't know much about Tanya, who was mostly quiet about herself and her involvement, but this was normal for a lot of survivors, so it wasn't exceptional. After several months, Tanya began to reveal information about herself. For instance, she had been on the 78th floor of the South Tower, working at the Merrill Lynch office, and was one of only 19 people at that point or above to survive. The South Tower had been hit between the 77th and 85th floor. When the plane was coming in, she saw it, but there was a huge explosion when it collided with the building, blowing her against a marble wall and knocking her unconscious. When she awoke, the office was filled with smoke and she was forced to scramble over burning wreckage while damaging her arm. On the way out, she met a dying man who gave her his wedding ring and asked her to return it to his wife. She was then rescued by a fireman towards the bottom of the building who helped rush her to hospital. After recovering, she learned that her fiance, a man called Big Dave, had died in the North Tower. 
In fleeing the tower, she said the one thing that kept her going was picturing herself in a white dress on her wedding day. Many were touched by Tanya's story and wanted to meet her in person. They got their wish on the second year commemoration of 9-11 when Tanya attended an event. Tanya was a squat Latina woman with a strong accent. She had a huge amount of scarring up her right arm, but despite her appearance, she had a tremendous force of character, and people began to listen and follow her. She was very persuasive and said she had gone to Harvard Law School. Tanya began to have a lot of influence all over the 9-11 community, making friends with a lady called Linda Gormley, who hadn't been in the towers that day, but had witnessed the events on the street and felt haunted. After emailing Tanya, Linda and her began to have a close friendship with the subservient Linda following instructions given to her by Tanya. Many others felt devoted to Tanya and wanted to help her in any way they could as they felt she had suffered so much. Tanya said that she wanted to try out a technique called flooding, in which she recorded an audio tape of her talking about her trauma and then she would listen back to it with somebody else and Tanya would try and overcome her emotions. Linda was made listen to this tape dozens of times and it began to give her nightmares all about Tanya's experiences. When Linda tried to stop these sessions due to her trauma, Tanya would explode in anger, telling her she was a poor friend and didn't Linda realize how much she had suffered? Wouldn't she back a true 9-11 survivor? As Tanya's influence began to grow within the community, she began to do tours of Ground Zero with Linda, explaining what had happened to her and telling people all about her trauma. As Tanya began to grow in influence, her story began to change a bit. Big Dave had no longer been her fiancé, but in fact was actually her husband. He had surprised her in August 2001, and they had flown out to Hawaii to get married. Nobody really wanted to question Tanya's story. When people started to notice the inconsistencies, she claimed that it actually had been a Hawaiian island marriage, so it didn't legally count, but she saw them as married, which is why she would sometimes say fiancé, sometimes say husband, and everyone else dropped it. This was normal for survivors whose stories sometimes would change a little bit. She had claimed that her parents were in California, and they had actually agreed to the marriages, giving it their blessing. However, her stories began to change a little bit more, because she said when she was in the North Tower, she had been helped escape by a man who was wearing a red bandana. This was widely reported to be Wells Crowfer, a man who was famed for saving many people that day and was widely hailed as a hero of 9-11. When Jennifer Crowfer, Wells' mother, heard about a person her son had helped, she asked to speak to Tanya. Tanya agreed on the terms that the conversation was completely private. Jennifer met Tanya and was so impressed by her that she asked Tanya to speak at her son's memorial service. When Tanya agreed, but when going up on stage, she burst into tears and got Linda to read her statement for her. With all her influence, 
Tanya ended up being the person chosen to give New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani a tour around Ground Zero in 2005 and had now largely become the main person involved in Ground Zero tours. In 2006, Tanya decided to start to consolidate her power over the World Trade Center Survivors Network and began to talk to people about its head, Jerry Bogatz. She said he wasn't doing enough for survivors and someone needed to take a harder line. Using these underhand tactics, she managed to get Jerry kicked off the board of governors of the Survivors Network and had herself made president, a role which had not existed before. She was finally completely in charge. However, being in charge brought her under the attention of a lot of media. She happily did stories for the New York Daily News, Time and the Journal News. In the build-up to the 6th anniversary of 9-11, the New York Times wished to do an interview with her, which she said she was happy to do. However, when she learned about their line of questioning, she quickly shut down the idea of the interview and began to give reasons to back out of it. However, the journalist persisted and under pressure, Tanya got members of the survivors group to contact the journalist to leave her alone. Only Tanya would yell at them, saying that they had made the situation worse. But the other survivors began to listen to the journalists' questions and thought they were actually quite reasonable. Was Dave your fiancé or husband? Why have none of his family ever heard about you or your engagement? What was the hospital you were brought to? What was the name of the firefighter who helped you? What was the name of the widow you gave the wedding ring to? Many people began to think it was odd she couldn't answer a single one of these questions. They didn't want to pry, but they felt Tanya should answer or at least give them the information so they could answer. Tanya decided to go to a lawyer. And from this part of the story, I'm just going to directly quote Lisa Marcus from Nadorama.com. Once it became clear that the New York Times would publish an article that questioned the veracity of Tanya's story, she asked Janice Coleco, a social worker on the board of the Survivors Network, to accompany her to a visit to an attorney. After two hours spent in the attorney's waiting room, Janice was called into a meeting with Tanya. A stunned Coleco listened as the attorney, in several minutes unraveled the detailed 9-11 story that Tanya had passionately told them for years. Tanya had not attended Harvard. She never worked for Merrill Lynch, nor had she even been in the towers that day. The scars on her arms were not burns. The elaborate fairy stories all about Dave, the man she said was her fiance, were all the stuff of fantasy. The first and last name of her supposed fiance that Tanya had given friends was a real man who had died in the North Tower, yet she had never known him. Tanya had studied every element of the 9-11 tragedy so intently that she had been able to fool those who had emerged from the smoke and the wreckage, their bodies, yet their minds never unscathed. With this new information, she was immediately removed from her post in the Survivors Network and completely disappeared from New York City. 
But who really was Tanya? Her real name was Alicia Estes Head, and she was from Barcelona, Spain. She actually had no relatives in California. She had grown up in an extremely wealthy household, owning her own racehorse and being a member of an expensive tennis club. Alicia had always been an Americophile, loving everything about American culture and frequently saying she wanted to move there. As a young adult, she had been part of a car accident which had severed her right arm, but it had been able to be reattached, explaining why she was so scarred. On September 11th, a 28-year-old head was still living in Barcelona, completing her postgraduate studies. She had finally went to America for the first time at the age of 30 on the second anniversary of 9-11. After Tanya disappeared, many in the Survivors Network began to receive emails anonymously saying they should forgive Tanya or Tanya had killed herself. However, director Angelo Guillermo, who was a filmmaker who knew Tanya, saw her twice more in New York in 2010 and 2011. Both times when he approached her asking why she had done the fraud, she either ignored him or just hissed at him. Angelo released a film where he had interviewed different people about the story, including Tanya herself when she was still pretending to be a survivor, called The Woman Who Wasn't There. A few months after the film was released, someone in Barcelona connected back to Tanya, who is now working as an insurance company who promptly fired her after learning what she had done in New York. Okay guys, uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, Before we finish, I'm just going to give a brief summary of how I feel, and I'd love for you to contact me and tell me how you feel. So, just to start off, we're talking about liars and frauds, and... I think lying isn't always a bad thing. That's the first thing I want to say. Like I think white lies to stop somebody being hurt or, for instance, uh, lying for the sake of being funny. I think these are fine. But I think all the people today, they were lying in a way that either hurt themselves or hurt other people. So the first examples we're going to talk about are the two people in the army, the British army. We're going to talk about Roger Day, the man with 17 medals. And Sir Alan, the man who worked at a call centre. The thing I always find amazing about this level of lie is you always have to put yourself at the pinnacle of something. You wouldn't be happy just being a soldier or getting respect. You have to have been the greatest soldier of all time to the extent that you would be world-renowned. They're like, no, I'm not content with lying about a job that I didn't do. I had to have done that to the extent that, like, I was the greatest ever. And just in my own head, like, you know, I could claim a lie and say, oh, you know, I can put up wallpaper or something. I can't. No, that's a silly lie, and that will get me in trouble. But it's just like saying, and I put up wallpaper for the president and the queen and all this. It just makes it even more of a fail when people catch you out. And the whole kind of, like, stolen valor thing, I think it's... I think the idea of just doing that is just, it would wind me up. Never, I've never been part of the armed services and I don't have any family or anything like that who have been in it. But 
I can just imagine that you risk your life to do something and then you've got somebody who's just clowning around pretending to have done what you did and kind of like giving it a bad reputation in a kind of way because they don't really know what they did and people are like, look at that army guy, like, he was a real clown. Well, I, I can't imagine him at war and then you're like, dude, he clearly wasn't. I mean... Yeah, I can just I can imagine some things that I've done in my life that I've worked hard for. Not that I wasn't risking my life for it, but if somebody came up and said, I've achieved the same level as you and they hadn't even like filled in a form or done anything for it, I can imagine that driving me absolutely bonkers. And the second story we're going to talk about is Brian Williams, the newscaster. And I can kind of, in a weird way, I can sympathize with him because you... With this is the kind of lie that you can kind of see it mutating over time. Because the BBC were talking about the soldiers about, you know, they start lying that they say something in a pub to impress somebody. And then the lie gets out of hand because people are like, oh, where did you serve? And then you have to say, oh, I was in Gibraltar. And then people say, oh, did you see this in Gibraltar? And you have to be like, oh, God, Wikipedia, all these facts about Gibraltar. Brian Williams, he actually was there and he had told a story about a helicopter. But it was just suddenly... You know, instead of being able to tell the truth, it was just like, oh yeah, I saw somebody lift an RPG off the back of a truck. And you know, maybe he did see something that wasn't related to the story and he tied it together. Or maybe he just saw something suspicious and it was embellishing. But it's not the worst thing. And then he said like, oh, then I noticed a small arms fire. I was like, well, you weren't there, but maybe you saw a small arms fire against a helicopter, you're getting confused. But the point that I think you stop embellishing and it becomes straight out lies. Oh, they were firing at all four helicopters. So it's suddenly adding you to the action. If you know what I mean. It's suddenly making you a person who's involved in the story because you could say, oh, I saw this and I misconnected it. But the second you're going around saying, oh, I was under fire, then the 10-year version where it's just like, oh, we're under fire by RPGs and AK-47s stuff that could bring down helicopters you're just like okay now you're claiming your life was in danger to uh alec baldwin oh yeah i briefly thought i was going to die you're just like dude that's clearly not true you have to step back and think you were nowhere near it maybe you did think you were going to die in iraq but it's not connected to that you're just completely making it up and again you have people who actually were there and had a risk and survived and you're just bit, you're just kind of like saying oh yeah you know this man saved my life and they were like well he wasn't there at the incident neither were like we were can't you just like let things go so i can imagine why they were very annoyed at him and personally i think he should have probably been in trouble for longer than he was because i know he was out for seven months but if you're a news person and especially with American media where it's so based off opinions and a newscaster saying like, oh, I'm a trustable fellow. Because, you know, the BBC can replace half a dozen presenters, but they'll all be given the same script. From American news, from what I understand, it's very personalised. So once you kind of break trust with Brian Williams, I don't think he should have came back under that role. Hillary, I can kind of feel a bit of sympathy for Hillary because, frankly, she... Between 1992, when she was first lady, till about 2008, she was kind of rushing all over the place. Like, first lady, she could have been like, oh, here, I'm going to Northern Ireland. 
oh no, I'm going to uh, South Korea, or now I'm going to a refugee camp in Bosnia, or now I'm doing this. I can totally imagine a few stories getting muddled in your head when you're traveling between all these places. And then she was a senator and probably traveling over the place. And then she was like the secretary of state, which is basically the equivalent of a foreign minister. So you're traveling everywhere as well. I can totally get her getting things muddled up in her head and getting stuff confused. But the thing I would say is you shouldn't add details. Because I don't think you would ever let the president's wife or president near a situation that would involve sniper fire. I just think that that wouldn't be allowed. So I don't think that's happened in any of the situations that she's been in. Like, uh, you know, maybe there was American snipers on the roof because when Hillary and Bill Clinton visited my hometown after it got bombed in 1998, there were snipers in that town, but they were all American snipers watching out for other people who might make an attempt on the president or first lady's lives. So maybe something like that, but like, I think she was just trying her arm and just to go back to Sinbad and be like, no, you're wrong. Do just admit it. You got something wrong and you get something confused. And if you don't know a story fully, don't add details. Because when you're someone as famous as her, people will have recorded it. I would say there's very little field trips that she had done between 92 and 2008, which weren't recorded by the media. So that's foolish by her. Next story, uh, Stephen from The League. Yeah. I don't get why you would insert yourself into a tragedy like that. I mean, there's one thing trying to pretend that you're like part of the military or something like that because they've got a lot of prestige and you're trying to make people think that, you know, you've got a reputation that a military person would have. But that's just kind of, to me, is kind of sick because you're just thinking, what is something interesting about me? Oh, someone else's tragedy. And that's just so, in my own head, that is just something so kind of weird and twisted that it's just like, oh, let's think about a tidbit that makes me interesting in conversations. 9-11. Yeah, you were there during 9-11. And again, I totally get that he might have been like, oh, I was in Manhattan at 9-11. And people were like, oh, you were in Midtown. And then it suddenly was like, you're moving block by block each time you tell the story. Oh, I was 20 blocks away or... I was 10 blocks away or I was five blocks away until suddenly like, oh, I was working in like on the Tower 9, which wasn't hit or then slowly. But like you don't, you should basically catch yourself on. I get you're, you could exaggerate and say, oh, I was 20 blocks and it suddenly becomes 10 blocks or five blocks that that's kind of telling a story. But the second you're actually putting yourself in the buildings, I think you've kind of crossed the line. And that's the line that you're making yourself pretty reprehensible. And I do understand that he tried to walk it back because from about 2013, when people were asking him about it, he was saying, no, actually, I wasn't in the towers that day. I was outside. And, you know, I think he was slowly trying to walk it back. So, you know, if people hadn't asked questions, I think he was going to probably do the right thing, saying he was outside and then saying, no, I was actually working two blocks away, five blocks away, 20 try and get back to his original position but yeah he was caught out and he probably deserved to be caught out does he deserve a career after this um i don't really 
think so. I mean, it depends how hard he works and what he does, but I can see there's plenty of other comedians out there who haven't lied about 9-11 who should be given an opportunity above him. So that's how I feel. Finally, Tanya Head. I mean, even more than Steve, that is just so sick. And I think that she must have a mental problem or be mentally imbalanced because that is not something a healthy person would do because not only did she insert herself into 9-11 and put herself like as one of 19 people who had survived that high but she kind of turned it into her personality so it wasn't just like for Stephen it was something flippant that he was saying as part of conversation to get sympathy but she made this like her life for four years that she was like the head of the 9-11 victims and she was responsible and she was telling people all these stories I could understand if she felt like an emotional response to 9-11 like an awful lot of people but like she could have totally set up the 9-11 victims website and just said no I'm just somebody who like deeply cares and I'll pay for the web hosting and like try and you know you could ingratiate 9-11 victims that way and kind of be like remotely friendly to them and then think oh that's that person's a very kind nice person and you know that would have been a good thing but it's just like to be like oh no 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 I'm I'm the queen of the victims it's just something so sick because like any one of those victims I bet would have done almost anything to remove themselves from that situation like even like the people traumatized that they're like you know even just not being in the building that day you'd still be traumatized but like a guy who was like on the 83rd floor that day you know what he wouldn't give for about a week before 9-11 for his bosses to have said no we're moving to brazil and you've lost your job and like you know he'd have been sad but then he would have probably been fairly delighted that his him and his co-workers were like fine but you know people like that oh anything we can do to get away from this and then she's just like no 9-11 happened to you but for me it was my choice i just think that's so sick and that's just where i'm coming from i don't think claiming to be you know a survivor of a tragedy is something anyone should ever try and claim so those were my opinions uh, again i would love to hear from anyone and hear what they have to say particularly i'd be kind of interested if anyone from the armed forces listens to this wanted to tell me their opinion on stolen valor is it something that everyone thinks is bad or do some people just think oh, that's pathetic and shrug it off that'd be something i'd be interested in hearing does anybody think i've been too harsh on anyone like brian williams or hillary clinton i'd love to hear from you so you can contact me at scapegoatpodcast at gmail.com you can contact me at twitter at scapegoatpod and you can contact me via my discord so there should be links to the discord in the description of this podcast episode or you can find it on my twitter so i would love to hear from you guys uh oh there's something i always keep forgetting if you are on itunes or your own podcast app 
and it gives you the option to leave a review. If you could just give me a five-star review, I'm not going to lie to you and say, oh, give me what you want. I'd love a five-star review. If everyone was just like, he's a middling podcaster free, it would break my heart. Uh, yeah, I would love if someone could give this. It would help me very much if you did that. I mean, you can give me five stars and then write something funny. I've done that with other podcasts, but uh, yeah, that would be absolutely great. So I've been Luke. This has been Scapegoat. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>